If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. We're going to be talking about the subject of love, life and being free and I guess as a philosopher of course I'm aware that this myth of uh, needing to be in love has very very profound roots. This week on Philosophy for Our Times our speakers have been scrutinising the age-old belief that lifelong romantic love is the answer to happiness. From ancient philosophy to Hollywood endings, this notion has been with us for a very, very long time. It's certainly there in Plato's Symposium, which is one of the kind of founding discourses on love, certainly in the Western tradition, the idea that actually human beings were originally both male and female, that we were hermaphrodites originally. Obviously, it's a myth, it's not real, but we got separated by the gods, and ever since, we've always wanted to find literally our other half. And so the idea of love has been one of reunification really with the the person we should have always been with so that that myth has been very powerful and prominent and what we're going to do in the next uh, 45 minutes or so is just test that assumption see if we agree with it see if we don't agree with it and see what other progress uh, we can make so to debate this topic for you we have an amazingly diverse range of speakers covering everything from mills and boone to evolutionary theory psychologist and author of singled out bella de paula Oxford transhumanist Anders Sandberg and romance author Heidi Rice seek out new love stories for you. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode and if you like what you hear then please do subscribe, rate us, tell everyone you know and of course tune in next week. Back to Robert Roland Smith who hosts this week's debate for you. So I'm going to come to you I think. <laughs> okay <laughs> great. First, if that's okay and uh, you'll tell us 
some of your initial thoughts on the subject. Okay, so the question I was told to think about was, do we need lifelong love to achieve happiness? And the first thing I want to do is contradict you <laughs> and say that I want to rescue love from the stifling little box we've stuffed it into. Love is so much bigger than just romantic love. Love has a huge heart. It throws its arms around close friends, cherished relatives, maybe even spiritual figures. The love that lives in those relationships is sometimes made of sterner stuff than the flimsy, romantic variety that can burn ravenously and then just fizzle out. Any of those many splendid colors of love can contribute to a happy and fulfilling life. So that's one. Second, what happens if you accept my bigger, broader meaning of love? Do we still then need love in that sense in order to achieve happiness? That's the broad view of life that says nothing matters more in life than our relationships with other people. Maybe they don't have to be romantic relationships, but they have to be some sort of close relationship in order for us to be happy. Well, what does that perspective do with people who put some sort of powerful passion at the center of their life? Maybe it's a passion for social justice or scientific achievement or artistic creativity or anything else that matters to people more than anything else, more than anyone else. I think those people can be very happy and deeply fulfilled. Their lives are full of meaning. And finally, love is not the opposite of independence. I've been single my entire life, and I've lived alone since I finished graduate school back in the Stone Age. <laughs> I have a lot of independence, and I also have a lot of love. But the love I have in my life does not insist that I share a bed with it or spend time with in-laws or get dragged along as a plus one to one dreary event after another. Now, you might say, well, you, maybe you cherish having someone in your bed or someone you can, that you can be there with for every little event of everyday life or even the bigger happy ones, and that's fine. But what's also fine What's actually great is that we don't all have to want the same things, that we can each go for the life that works best for each of us as individuals, that incorporates just the right mix of time alone and time with other, with other people, independence and interpersonal connection. Thank you, Bella. Thank you very much indeed. So what I hear in that is a kind of manifesto for big love, expanding the concept of love beyond the romantic, essentially. How about you, um, Heidi? How do you come at this? OK, so I think you should be writing romantic fiction myself with that very passionate <laughs> introduction. Um, oh basically, I make a living out of writing about people falling in love. So obviously, there is that element to my character. that I, I don't think of myself as a hopeless romantic. I think of myself as a hopeful romantic because I've also been in a relationship for 27 years, and I know that um, relationships can be stressful. They can be, there's no guarantee of happiness within them. They're not necessarily gonna last. And I also think that you can find um, a lot of what you get in a romantic relationship in other relationships as well. And I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. Um, 
I think we also need to look at, when we're looking at romantic love, we have to say to ourselves, um, what are people expecting from these relationships if they are finding them stressful, if they are finding them difficult to navigate? And then you maybe say, are the, you know, are the expectations unrealistic? Are people simply, maybe people are simply in stressful, unhappy relationships. I mean, that's possible as well. And do we assume that once someone is in a relationship that that's the job done? It, because of course these relationships change and they evolve and not all relationships are supposed to last. I mean, I think when you work well, when relationships work well, they offer a lot of things. They offer companionship, they offer support. But you know, you have to say to yourself, is that worth the stress that they can also cause? I also think that you have to think of, in romantic relationships, also about having kids, and that brings extra, you know, stresses to those relationships. And that's all part of the panacea, if you like, of romance and romantic love. But I wouldn't entirely disagree with what you're saying about, you know, there's nothing wrong with being single at the same time. Okay, that's thank you, Heidi. Um, I mean, I heard you say the word rela relationships many, many times there, which I guess suggests to me that our, although we're talking about romantic love, which has this notion of an ideal or a fantasy, of course it it, it gets played out in yeah, relationships. Yeah, I think there's there's a very very common misconception about romantic fiction and people that read romantic fiction in that, you know, it's like this kind of ephemeral search for love, hunt for Mr. Right. That's not what they're about at all. The you know, the end game is that there is an, you know, there is a positive outcome to this relationship, but it's really the story of, story of the relationship and how it evolves that is the core of the story. So, and that's what people, when they're reading romantic fiction, enjoy about the story. It's a bit like saying, you know, when you're reading a crime novel and you find out who done it, really who done it is not the core of the story. It's how you got there and how you found that out. So, I mean, I think. Okay, thank you. Anders, how are you coming at this? So I'm a lapsed computational neuroscientist working on the, the questions on the ethics of human enhancement. And most of that dealt with enhancing cognition, the kind of cold uh, aspects of thinking, intelligence, memory, and what are the impact on society if we find ways of improving that. But then I stumbled upon a, a paper about the neuroscience of love, and I realized that love, in, to, in a large degree, it's, of course, just as much a part of our brain structure as memories. So if we can mess with memory, we could mess with love using uh, biomedical tools. And I realized that's yummy to write a paper about. <laughs> so I co-authored a paper with Julia Savlescu about the possibility of enhancing love using, for example, the drugs or some other biomedical intervention. And that was kind of the earliest paper dealing with this question. So I've been having fun now arguing with other philosophers about this. But part of the question is, of course, well, why do we even love in the first place? And I think the real answer is we're mammals. We need to rear our young, and our young don't thrive very well because we are not egg-laying animals, but instead the mother needs to take care of the young. And that means that she needs to remember who she's given birth to. She needs to have a special relationship to that uh, crawling, uh, demanding little creature. Uh, probably birds have very similar problems. Now, that means that evolution has favored brains that find a good way of doing that kind of maternal attachment. But of course, quite a lot of these little uh, crawling youngsters 
demand a lot of resources, so the father might need to be in on it too. So again, evolution just copies that between the male and female brain. After all, it's not much difference. So then you get parental attachment. And then comes the interesting part. We humans have unusually annoying babies. They demand a lot of resources for a lot of time. It's really important for the parents to stay together. To give. So this evolutionary account of where we end up with love is that it's accepted from the parental attachment, but we also do the same attachment to each other. And from evolution's perspective, it's all about the kids. It doesn't care about our happiness or what we're feeling. It just cares about what genes produce the most offspring and the grand offspring. But of course, we got big minds. We got brains that think about what we're feeling and thinking about. So we start adding stuff to this. It's not just that we fall in love with each other, which you can see as mate selection and later pair bonding, but we also start to reflect on what it means to us. We might say that there is this abstraction called love that has various properties. We might write poetry about it. We might argue how it should link to law and uh, our social system. So we add tremendously much extra stuff on top of the love, which means that the original purpose evolution gave it is kind of, yeah, it's there, but uh, th we make much more human things out of love. The problem is, of course, the basic system in our brain was not built for us living really long times in really complex societies and thinking deep thoughts about each other. So I think the basic neuroscience is probably relatively straightforward, even though there is still quite a lot of things to untangle there. But that suggests that there might be ways of enhancing it. But it also suggests to me that, yeah, the love that evolution created is very limited. That's not about being free. That's just about making sure babies become adults eventually. But the love we humans make, that is all about being free. It's partially because we are freely thinking about the meaning of our emotions and how we function in the world, and also that we can actually select what we choose to think about and how we choose to construct it. So I think we have a pretty good chance of being free about love. OK. Um, thanks, Anders. Uh, for a while there, I thought you were sort of saying that all love can be reduced to sort of neurochemical reactions or evolutionary function. But it's interesting at the end, you go on to say that actually, once we understand that, we can look at, as it were, higher experiences of love and how they put us in touch with in our emotions. In a sense, evolution has overshot its target. Yeah. It gave us big brains to uh, have us feed ourselves. And then we started thinking about things beyond food and sex and kind of, hey, maybe there is something to philosophy. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't evolution's intention at all, but aha, good for us. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, thank you, all of you. Um, so we're now going to take um, three more kind of specific questions to try and get uh, into a bit more detail around this subject. And the first one is a kind of philosophical question, and it's really whether love, the capacity to love, is actually an essential part of being human. Like, if you were to define the human being, could you define the human being without including love in that? I mean, could a human being be reduced to something else, you know, uh, purpose in life, or uh, just simply being in the philosophical tradition. There's a strong notion of just being as being sufficient. You don't have to be in love as well uh, in order to be a fully realized human being. So I think I'll come to you first, uh, Heidi, on this, because I'll put this in a slightly provocative way, if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, you could say, I mean, romantic fiction's all very well, but you don't need it in the way that you need sort of food and shelter. So, you know, along those similar lines, could we say, well, love 
not really essential for human beings. It's not really essential to who we are. It's a nice to have. It might have a temporary evolutionary purpose, but really it's, it's an indulgence. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's temporary necessarily, the evolutionary purpose. Um, I'd certainly agree with Anders when he said that um, romantic love flies out the window fairly quickly after you have young children. I'd certainly agree with that. Um, when you say romantic fiction isn't necessary for living, yes, of course it's not. I mean, it's an, it's an escapist entertaining format. That's what it's about. Um, but I, don't, I think when you're talking about love, generally what you're talking about is relationships and the way we connect with other people. And that doesn't always have to be about romantic love, love to a partner. It can be about love with a child or love with a you know, parent or even in friendships. I mean, those are really important parts of being a human being, I think, is the connections that we make with other people. I think love, romantic love, I don't see it as being as a sort of ephemeral thing that you can achieve and then that's just the end of it. I see it as being made up of different elements within a relationship. That's, you know, support, companionship, intimacy, and those elements and how much of them you need and your partner needs and how you work that out together is ultimately all about you. And so it is, you can still be individual within a relationship. I think navigating that minefield so that each partner gets what they need in a relationship is basically the core story of a romance novel. You know, the project is a couple's individual needs. You know, as the relationship progresses, they do shift and change. And romantic fiction tends to just generally just look at the early part of that relationship where you get to the stage where that relationship is in a committed place. So you can have happy ever after. You want to imply that this will, relationship will continue. But really what you're talking about is that early stage of the relationship. I mean, it's really hard even when you're using fictional characters to make those relationships work. So, it, you know, I think you can see that it is hard in real life too, obviously. I mean, I've got complete control of my characters and sometimes I find it really hard to get those layers and that kind of, you know, that structure to work, so. Okay. Okay, so uh, it is important. It is fundamental insofar as relationships are fundamental to us. There's, uh, we move beyond the ephemeral phase into something else. How about you, Bella? Could you imagine <sighs> defining the human being without throwing love into the pot? It suggests that for people like me, who are not searching for romantic love, we don't even count as human. And that takes my breath away. And if it's searching for love, that searching part that makes people human, then what happens after people find it? Do they turn into, <laughs> they turn into insects? <laughs> so I think that what makes you human is being human. If you're a person, you count as human. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Okay, okay. I mean, the searching phenomenon is pretty big these days, as we know from the kind of millions of dating apps out there <laughs> and so on. What's your take on all of that? The let's focus on the word search, the search mm. for love. Yeah, so 
from a neuroscience perspective, you of course get all these interesting behaviors where you have mate selection. Uh, you can find animals doing all sorts of weird activities in order to demonstrate uh, to potential mates that, oh, I'm the one for you. And the, there are big questions how this even works in the human brains. We don't understand. There are claims about pheromones. There are all sorts of interesting psychology. And it's fairly inconclusive. But it's pretty clear that to many people, of course, searching is important. They go out uh, to bars and pubs and disco, and these days we're using all sorts of apps. And that seems to be a very important part of their life. It never was to me. I was very much of this kind of typical academic nerd. I was happy sitting in front of my computer and playing role-playing games with my friends. Except that one of my friends in the role-playing group, we, well, we became close friends, we kept on meeting each other, we became closer friends and closer friends, and eventually we married. I never searched for love. He, he just arrived because another friend couldn't make it to that particular game session. <laughs> <laughs> now, now the, I think the very interesting part here is that I think that search itself is important to many people because we define ourselves to some extent by the activities we like to do. In my previous description here, I define myself as an academic nerd. I'm very happy to describe myself like that, but others definitely wouldn't like to describe themselves, so they would project some other self. And quite often we do that projection by our social activities, so the search is important. Except, of course, that in other cultures and situations it might not have been. In many cultures, well, love is supposed to be through an arranged marriage. If you're going out searching for love, you're searching for trouble. That's not what a proper young person should be doing. And perhaps next generation are going to be totally kind of dependent on apps. So actually going, to the, the, going out to meet somebody who's ideal for you, that's weird, uh, because searching for love is a software issue. I think we're redefining it quite a bit. But I do think that the important part here is we humans love to define ourselves. And we get very cross if somebody contradicts our idea of what it is. But we also have a hard time empathizing with other people might function really differently. There are a lot of really weird people out there who don't think like me. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, what I'll do, I'll pick up on this notion of um, searching, because it gets us into our second question, which is about whether the kind of narratives we have about love are dangerous in some way. And the searching thing maybe is particularly pernicious, uh, whether it's on a dating app or in a bar, because, of course, once you think you're in a state of searching, and this presumably is part of a romantic narrative, people looking for love, there's always, from the moment you begin the search, there's always the possibility of disappointment. So, you know, it's, what's interesting about your story is you fell in love when you weren't looking. It kind of arose. Uh, and yet, of course, the looking for love is a very it's a kind of dominant concept that we have. So, so what do we do with that? I mean, is, should we kind of rather like Anders, should we sort of wean ourselves off the idea that there is a search for love or a look for love? Should we just open ourselves up to, to chance and to fate? Yes. I mean, well, I think <laughs> it depends, you know. But I, it's interesting because romantic fiction usually starts from the point of view that the couple are not looking to fall in love. So that's usually the first point of the conflict is that they're not actually looking to fall in love and they it's not that they don't like each other but there are lots of layers of conflict there which some of them will be external but some of them will be internal as well and I think 
when you talk about romantic narratives, what exactly are we talking about here? I mean, are we talking about romantic fiction or are we talking about something like Romeo and Juliet, which yeah, is, I think we're talking nobody about... comes out of that very well. No, you know, they sort don't. Of, you know, but that's still considered to be a romance. You I know, suppose in some we're ways. thinking about formalized narratives at one end, like fictions, yeah. like yeah. books. But at the other end, I think probably just the, you know, what's in the culture about the way we talk about yeah. love. I mean, I Have you met you the person at, you want? When Mr. You look at, Mr. Yeah, when you look at romantic fiction, what you've got to say to yourself is what are people getting out of it who read it? Because there are a lot of misconceptions about what it is, as I've already said. You know, it is, it's, it is escapist. There is an element of romantic fantasy in there, particularly in the sex, I might add, because there's not a lot of bad sex in romance novels partly because people don't fantasize about bad sex. The point is that you, I think, you're giving your readers an escapist thrill. There is that there. But the, but the thing that the core of the story is really about the relationship. It's about the, 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 the way the relationship develops. And you make, you're making two characters as individuals and you're putting them together, but they still have to be able to have their own needs met. And you have to be able to believe that they're actually falling in love. Um, and they're overcoming the conflicts that they have, you know. So it's the story of the relationship that's the interesting thing for readers. It's not, um, it's, not the, it's not so much the end result. That's kind of like the thing that says, well, you've spent all this time reading this book about these people. We're not going to kill them off at the end just when you've got engaged with their story. Yeah. Okay, so what about... I mean, does the idea of love stories, uh, you know, just turn you cold, or do you think there's a place for them? Um, Are they I, dangerous? I th yes, they're dangerous, and they're also really limiting. They take this vast, uh, very varied kind of people that we can be and reduce them to one story. And there's also social science research on what these romantic narratives do to people, especially to women. So there are some science, social scientists who are interested in the question of why aren't more women interested in science and technology? And they've done these studies where something as simple as seeing a romantic image as opposed to seeing an image of intelligence like books or libraries, women who see a romantic image express less interest in science and technology. And they do these studies where they have these college student women overhear a conversation where another woman talks about her date from the night before, or she talks about something about her course. And the women who hear the conversation about the date, again, expressed less interest in science and technology. And one more study, which is that they had these women college students keep diaries of all their interactions, including every time they texted a boyfriend or called a boyfriend or spent time with him. And on days when they texted a boyfriend or had any communication with a romantic partner, they spent less time on their math homework and paid less attention in math class that day and the day after. So just these very subtle manipulations have effects on, and they're very limiting effects on what women want to do with their lives. So have you ever come across a love story which satisfies your own criteria? Um, oh, yeah, if it's about a love that's not just romantic. OK. You know? Can you give us any examples? Oh, well, here's one from one of Heidi's books. So oh, in her book... Um, <laughs> got a bad feeling about this. It was um, 
pleasure, pregnancy, and proposition. Yeah. So at the end of the book, the main character is talking to this, this dear friend that she's had for a long time, obviously has this close relationship with her. And Heidi then in the next sentence uh, talks about um, the person that this main, the persons that this main character loves the most. And I'm reading this and I'm saying, Heidi, please include the friend, please include the friend, please include the friend. But instead, the sentence continues, the two people she loves the most are her husband and her son. And that's fine, but open your arms bigger, you know, let in the friend, let us have let us have love that isn't stifled, that isn't limited by these standards. I mean, there's nothing wrong with loving your spouse or your kid. I mean, that's great. As a kid, I liked being loved. But, but don't limit love to that. Okay. Um, you two will have to obviously have a Barney in the bar afterwards about that. <laughs> I can't remember. I mean, that book I wrote about so long ago now. Yeah. I've written, yeah. Okay, let's move on to the other side of the equation and talk about the advantages of not being in love, the advantages or and disadvantages of being single, being free, and so on. Let me come to you first, Anders. I mean, you told us a lovely story about what happened to you personally. And if I can still carry on in that personal vein, do you feel that your freedom is now curtailed now that you're in a relationship? Not really, because it's a very much of a long-distance relationship. <laughs> so... so so my husband is a prosecutor. He's married into the Swedish legal system. I'm at Oxford. I'm married to academia. And we both kind of realize, mm, yeah, uh, we're not giving up that. So we're about 1,400 kilometers uh, apart, which suits us very fine, because we're both rather nerdy people. We, I send interesting scientific abstracts by email to Håkan. Håkan responds by sending interesting legal cases. Occasionally, we phone each other up with really bad legal or scientific puns. The, the nice thing is, of course, when we meet, if that's going to be on a holiday or some interesting family event, and we don't have to argue about who's doing the dishes, which is very, very good, I think, for the long-term prospect of that relationship. But I'm playing the game here at the easiest possible setting, obviously. I think many people actually want more out of a relationship, and they actually want to be together with a person relatively constantly, in which case the difficulty goes up. And then the constraints also go up. I find it slightly daunting logistically even to handle uh, my remote husband. Uh, I'm, totally in, I'm totally in awe of some of my polyamorous friends who are juggling these complicated constellations. Uh, and uh, as one of them said, well, thank heaven for Google Calendar. That's the only way of organizing. Uh, so I think at the very easiest, and you have this problem of actually just accommodating the sheer logistics of a family. But I do think there is also something about the constraints. Stravinsky said, limitations set you free. To some degree, binding yourself to somebody, that means that you're also making a commitment that is forcing you to try to stay with the person, find interesting properties of him and her. And that might actually unleash a bit of social and emotional creativity too. But again, you can construct this in a lot of different ways. There are some people who have very open marriages and relationships, others that uh, want to really, really constrain it because they think in that constraint there is beauty. Again, I think we should have a lot of freedom to define that. And I think that is important because one size doesn't fit all. Mm. Sounds like a match made in heaven, I must say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, does that ever happen in your novels? Uh, do, do people struggle with that commitment because they want freedom? Does that, is that a oh, yeah. genuine that's theme? That's a major theme in, in romantic fiction. And I don't think that you necessarily have to end up at a place where, um, you know, for the, for the relationship to have a positive outcome, I don't think you have to say um, you can't live for yourself as well. You know, a good relationship functions in a way where everyone is having their needs met. Now, of course, needs change over time, and so you have to either adapt or the relationship ends. I mean, or, you know, and that can be a struggle and it can be stressful and all the rest of it. You, you did use the word commitment a few times. Yeah. So is, there, is there a tension between commitment and freedom? I, I mean, I think at different times in a relationship, yes. I mean, when I had my first child, I think it was an absolute shock for both me and my husband. Our relationship changed in a really fundamental way because we suddenly couldn't do exactly what we wanted to do anymore. But that was all down to having the child, you know. Previous to that, we'd had a very happy relationship, um, you know, as individuals within a relationship. You know, and then that changed and we stayed together and we had another child and we thought, why did we do that? <laughs> you know, but then it was, but it, you know, it really, I think now, We've come out the other end of that. Our children are now grown up. And our relationship is um, different again. I mean, it, it's changed each time. Now, if we hadn't have stayed together, would we have then found someone else and had that, set, that relationship, you know, as good with someone else? Possibly. I mean, I don't know. You know, at that time, we decided to make that commitment and stay together. But, yeah, it's, I think they change and evolve. Yeah. And presumably, Bella, I mean, you're a sort of champion of, being single yes. and all that goes with that. Maybe I, I should come to you with almost the reverse question, which is, you know, what's the, what's the cost of that? What's the opportunity cost? What's the, oh, what's the, you know, the, I see you, I hear yeah. you celebrating freedom. Yeah. And oh, the... there are huge costs to being single. In the United States, there are more than a thousand laws that benefit and protect only people who are legally married. There are huge financial costs to being single. A study um, in the Atlantic magazine estimated that a single woman over the course of her lifetime can be shortchanged as much as a million dollars compared to a, to a married woman in terms of all the benefits, protections, financial um, advantages that married people get that single people don't. So there's big um, <laughs> costs that way. Um, one thing I'd also want to add is that if you think about, it, you know, is living for ourselves is something that's associated with being single, but in fact, when you look at what single people actually do, it's the reverse. So it's single people who are more often maintaining their relationships, nurturing their relationships, um, volunteering, helping their friends and family. They're there for their aging parents when they need help, more often than uh, married people are. And if you look at these studies that follow people over the course of their lives, what happens is when couples move in together or when they get married, they become more insular. They kind of ditch their friends, they pay less attention to their parents. It's like they look at each other and say, we are the world. <laughs> and so when you want to talk about living for oneself, it's actually um, more often married people who do that. They live just for each other. Hmm. OK, thank you, Bella. Well, thanks, all of you. Will you join me, please, in thanking all three of them, Anders Sandberg, Heidi Rice, and Bella DeCarlo. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you like what you heard, then please do subscribe, rate us, tell everyone you know about us. And of course, tune in next week when we're joined by Homie Barbar, Hilary Lawson and Rebecca Goldstein to discuss what it means to live in a post-truth world.